like many people in the 70s, I had a large collection of Smurfs, which I, I sold on eBay, and, and some of them were selling for shocking amounts of money, <laughs> hundreds of, some of them, you know, in the multiple hundreds of dollars wow. each. And it was enough for a while for me to make my way in, in the world. By selling collectibles on eBay. Selling Smurfs on eBay, mostly. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Curious Objects and the Stories Behind Them, brought to you by the magazine Antiques. I'm your host, Ben Miller. First, I'd like to thank our sponsors, Freeman's Auction House and Renolda House Museum of American Art. Our first sponsor is Freeman's Auction House in Center City, Philadelphia. Whether you're collecting or consigning, you want to deal with an auction house with a sterling reputation. Try Freeman's. Freeman's is the oldest auction house in America, dating to 1805. In my day job, I deal in silver and jewelry. We've bought dozens of pieces at Freeman's, ranging from a few hundred to tens of thousands of dollars, but it's not just silver and jewelry. Their specialists offer one-on-one service and expertise across all areas. Freeman's specialists have worked with generations of private collectors, institutions, advisors, estates, and museums. Their spring sale season this year offered 14 successful auctions, including eight significant private collections and four world auction records. Upcoming fall and winter auctions include an impressive list of subjects, Asian arts, fine jewelry, books, maps and manuscripts, Americana, British and European furniture and decorative arts, as well as 20th century design and American art and Pennsylvania impressionists. Freeman's is inviting new consignments right now. Want to find out more? Go to freemansauction.com. Before we get started, I want to give a quick shout out to the My Curious Object Instagram campaign. Last episode, I mentioned that the magazine Antiques was launching a campaign to ask you all to post your own curious objects to Instagram. We're going to pick a few of these pieces and feature them in the podcast. I've been honestly so impressed at not just the number of posts you've made, but also at how interesting and even downright bizarre the objects have been. Um, And it's not too late to participate. Post a picture of your curious object to Instagram with the hashtag MyCuriousObject and tag the magazine Antiques. Their handle is at AntiquesMag. You can also tag me directly. Uh, My handle is at ObjectiveInterest. I can't wait to see your objects. Again, that's hashtag MyCuriousObject, tag AntiquesMag, and ObjectiveInterest. Okay, my guest today is the owner of Geographicus Rare Antique Maps. His name is Kevin Brown. Kevin was actually the very first person I ever worked with in the antiques industry. I had a long-standing interest in maps, and Kevin and I are both in Brooklyn, so before I even knew I wanted to be an antique dealer, I did a little research for Kevin, and he gave me my first introduction to the world of buying and selling antiques. So it was an obvious choice to ask Kevin to join me on Curious Objects. His company, Geographicus, has an impressively wide-ranging inventory, And unlike a lot of antiques dealers, his website is actually easy to navigate. Um, And it has not only high-res photos, but also very extensive research on each map, um, even the less expensive ones. So it's worth taking a look. Uh, The site is geographicus.com. And as always, you can find images of today's curious object and related materials at themagazineantiques.com slash podcast. Today, we're talking about a 200-year-old Chinese map that challenges some of the basic ideas about what a map is supposed to represent and achieve. Kevin is fastidious about his research, and I think you'll really enjoy learning about this map. He also talked with me about his own very unusual start into the antiques business, as you might have guessed from the uh, Smurfs in the intro quote. 
But we also managed to touch on such disparate subjects as Amazonian tribes and Donald Rumsfeld. So with that teaser, I hope you're excited to hear from Kevin Brown. So Kevin Brown, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Thank you. Pleasure. Now, you're, you're a dealer in uh, rare and antique maps, and that is such an overwhelmingly large field because there are maps from all periods, from all parts of the world. There are real maps and imaginary maps. There are maps that show places and maps that show ideas. What, what kind of map do you typically deal in? Well, we are, in fact, generalists. So you're right. We throw a wide net. Our earliest maps date to the 1400s. Our most recent maps probably date to as late as, say, 1970 or so. In general, they are rare maps. So uh, as, as part of our uh, moniker or business name, it, it is accurate. So we, we do focus on unusual rare items. It's more what we don't do than what we do do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, Like jazz. I suppose. <laughs> So we, we don't compete excessively with the European market, so you won't find uh, our site full of maps of different provinces in France, English counties, or German provinces. It, we do have a strong European content, but it's more general than that. So we might okay. have a map of Italy, but not a map of Florence, although we do have maps of Florence. <laughs> But maybe no, you know, the second day of the Battle of Waterloo or... Uh, No, something like that. We probably would not have. We also don't generally have strong content in South America. Otherwise, we we get everything. And the map that uh, I wanted to talk to you about today is a, a map of... Well, it's a map of China, but it's kind of also a map of the world. And I find this thing completely fascinating and not to mention visually very impressive. Um, so let's let's dive into talking about this Qing Dynasty map. And I should say for listeners, the scale of this thing is massive. I mean, it's, what is it, four, four feet by six feet or? It's about 55 by 98 inches. This is a, an expansive map. It was issued in 1811 uh, in China. And as we mentioned, it's about 98 inches wide, which for a map is quite large. Uh, It's meant to cover an entire wall or, as it may have appeared in China, on a screen. It is often called printed in negative, although that is not precisely true, but the map is a striking, resonant, deep blue. And the seas around it are uh, a a lighter, uh, almost iridescent blue. Color was very, very significant in uh, Chinese not only uh, social and political thinking, but also kind of mystical thinking. Hmm. Uh, the blue is is somewhat obvious. Uh, the, the Chinese character for blue, at least the color blue that's used here, is in fact the same as the character that is part of the, the term Qing. Oh, and really? So, or, or at least Great Qing. So, so there's right, probably no a, a bit of a play going on. Uh, that the the artisan would have been aware of okay. when, when choosing to to make it in this intense color combination. So was, was blue an important color for the Qing Dynasty more more generally? So in traditional Chinese iconography, blue references immortality, underscoring the everlasting nature of the Qing Empire, which is in fact part okay. of the title of the map in translation. Oh, I didn't realize it had a title. It does. Uh, the translation of the title would be All Under Heaven, Complete Map of the Everlasting Unified Qing Empire. Oh, is that all? 
That's quite an ambitious headline. Yes, well, it was made for the emperor. And, uh, of course, the the map maker would, would have wanted the emperor to be impressed with the map. So, and, and all of the geographical features and annotations, they appear in white. So it, it is extremely vibrant and, and striking to observe. And you can see, of course, land and sea, and you can see some geographical features. Um, there are quite a few rivers, uh, including a couple of prominent rivers. Are those the, the Yangtze and the Yellow River? That's right. The two dominant rivers that flow through the map are the Yangtze and the Yellow River, which are gigantic snake-like white bands that run deep into the map. But the the overwhelming feature uh, over the surface of the map is actually Chinese characters. Well, yes. Uh, and, and symbols. This was an administrative map, if it could be called anything. And so as such, if it was made for the emperor, and if you were the emperor, you would look at this map, and by looking at it, you would understand the tax and tribute system throughout your entire empire. And notably, there are no borders. The Qing saw their domain as extending everywhere where a tribute was paid to them. And various kinds of tributes flowed into the empire from various sorts of officials, magistrates, foreign embassies, et cetera, et cetera. So if someone had brought a tribute to the emperor, their country is most likely represented on this map. So there are quite a few countries uh, on the map that from initially looking at it, you would not suspect. Nor is this map really a map as it would be understood from the Western or European mindset. So it's not printed or designed on a scale of distance. It's designed on a scale of significance to the Qing emperor. So tell me a bit about the representations of um, lands outside of China, because we have the the Yangtze and the Yellow Rivers running across really the majority of the map. And then all of what appears to be Africa and Europe condensed into a very small, um, almost a margin uh, on the left side. Is it clear or is it um, delineated exactly what regions of the rest of the world are represented? Somewhat. Uh, the, the map includes definitely England, includes Holland, includes Southeast Asia and Africa. Uh, there's a possibility that it also includes Portugal, but uh, some, of the, uh, some of the terminology is unclear. So the map uses uh, extremely Chinese, if you will, uh, terminology to describe various places. Holland is the, the land of red beards, and, <laughs> and Portugal is the land of the great Western Sea. Uh, okay. Italy is possibly on it. Uh, the Atlantic itself is the great Western Sea. Uh, Arabia appears on the map as the homeland of Islam. Okay, and that's sensible enough. It is, yes. And Africa, curiously, uh, has an interesting term, the land of black ghosts. Black ghost. Black ghost. Uh, what they actually meant by this is not 100% clear, but yes. I'm sure whatever it was is terribly politically incorrect. I, I, I'm sure. I'm sure. Uh, or, or maybe not. Um, you know, maybe it's just an odd translation or an archaic usage that doesn't apply today. Okay. So it's interesting to me that you describe it as an administrative map. And I would typically think that an administrative map, would, would you would want it to be accurate in some sense. You would want it to be useful as a 
representation of the distances between places. And 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 if you look at you know European maps in this time period, you know they're arriving at the point of being quite accurate from the perspective of you know representing the physical shape and size of bodies of land and water. This map is not like that. As you say, the proportions are they're representative not of physical scale but of uh, political prominence. What use was that really? What good was it to have a map um, that showed the world not as it exists physically, but as it exists from a kind of egocentric perspective? Well, you have to start with the basic understanding that the the Qing were a nomadic warrior people, and they were the such, uh, the Manchus from North China. Correct. Yes. So they did not see themselves bound or limited by physical barriers or distances in the way that a European king may have considered their empire. So the Qing really didn't care how far it extended or or how big it was. They cared that it was big, but it was more about the tributes that came in. And so the map, if you look at it with detailed care, there are little symbols on it. There are circles and squares and squares with triangles over it and diamonds and, and other symbols. And all these refer to various functionaries within the empire that would deliver a different kind of tribute. So some symbols might represent a, a major city. Others might represent a regional sub-magistrate. Others might represent an indigenous chieftain or something who pays tribute to to the emperor. So so when the emperor looked at this, what he saw is he saw his tax income. Mm-hmm. He's like, oh, I'm, I'm receiving uh, a certain level of tax from this regional magistrate in Guangzhou province. Good. And so he was able to see the extent of his empire. He was able to see where the money was coming from, where it wasn't coming from. He perhaps might say, well, I think we can get more money out of this area over here, send out the armies, mm-hmm. or, or more likely, send out a million Han settlers to repopulate uh, this region right, right. and develop it so that I will have and more... And fill it with our culture and our, um, our population. I will have more income from the region. Yeah. And in fact, potentially one of the reasons that this map was made in 1811 was because of a massive resettlement of Han Chinese farther to the west that redistributed the wealth of the empire. Oh, I see. So tell me about the history of this particular map, because it was issued in 1811, but that wasn't the first printing of this map, right? No. So this is part of a series of maps called the Tianxia Quantu. They are based upon the cartography of a fellow named Wang Zhongji, uh, that pronunciation may be a little bit off, but... Uh, I'm certainly not going to correct you. Thank you. It's, it, it's close. And he initially made the map uh, sometime in the late 1600s. That map is lost. We have no record of it. It has not survived. The earliest example was probably produced by his son. And the earliest known example is a manuscript version of the map that is held in the National Archives in China, and that dates to 1800. Now, after so, and, and by manuscript version, you mean it was drawn by hand? That's right, it's hand-drawn. After that, printed versions start appearing, and they would re, be reissued at various times, significant points in the Empire's history. This map, it's not 100% clear why it was issued in 1811. It may have been because of the massive redistribution of Han Chinese that we mentioned earlier. It may have been because of the suppression of several rebellions which occurred in that year. 
It's not clear, but uh, in general, it was not the best year for the Qing, but they did issue this map in that year. And this is the only example of it the, to be issued, as people say, in negative. And in fact, it's not really issued in negative, it's a rubbing. It's not a printing, it's a, it's a rubbing, right. which is a Chinese process, very traditional. Large pieces of cloth in strips will be laid down on a stone block and it'd be wetted. And then the, the inks would be applied with a, a pounding ink block and that yielded the, the intense blue. And in fact, the white areas are not printed areas, rather they are lack of printing. And so that gives it the, the intense uh, physical and uh, visual appearance that it has. So the white areas would have been carved out of the base stone. That's right. That's so right. that the ink would not have shown up on, on those That's spots. exactly right. right. I want to dwell a little more on the political significance of it. Would copies of this map have also been used as propaganda material or as uh, decorative works or... Would there have been other purposes besides the emperor sitting around on his settee and uh, gloating over the amount of taxes coming in from various provinces? It's not clear how distributed it was uh, within China at the time. It was probably maintained mostly within the central governance circles. Did did Chinese map making change dramatically when the Qing took power? Um, as you say, they they were a nomadic people. They might have had a different idea of uh, what a map represents and, and how it ought to be oriented. Are earlier Chinese maps more representational? Well, like many things related to China, especially the historical development of China and technology, it is incredible how complex and advanced Chinese cartography actually was by any measure. So we have maps dating, well, we don't have them, but we are aware there are historical references and, and examples of maps dating into extreme antiquity that are mind-bogglingly accurate on a rigid grid system that show detailed descriptions of all of the rivers and waterways throughout China. And, um, and so these exist. Mm. So when you ask, uh, did the Qing change the way the Chinese saw their empire? Potentially. Uh, or potentially the mapping, mapping of China simply changed to suit their, their own vision of the world. The model that this map has, however, where distant provinces and, and kingdoms and empires are represented in a minor, tiny scale as, as a, kind of a minutiae at the border of the map. That is a common theme through Chinese maps from the 1600s all the way up into the early 19th century, okay. or right. I wouldn't even say mid-19th century, uh -huh. when greater exposure to European maps changed the outlook somewhat. There are also other interesting Chinese maps that exist and we know of. Uh, for example, there's the Selden map. Uh, it was probably made for a merchant. And in contrast to almost all other Chinese maps, it's actually a fairly accurate map showing Chinese, the Chinese coast and all of Southeast Asia down through Malaysia and part of the 
East India Islands. Uh-huh. So it defies, uh, in a sense, this kind of cartography. It, it shows that there's a lot more there than we're clearly aware of. Yeah. The Chinese yeah. had a great deal of awareness of the world around them that didn't necessarily manifest itself clearly in maps as, as we understand them in, in the Western world. We're going to take a short break before hearing from Kevin about his truly off-the-beaten-path entree into the business of antique maps. As usual, I want to take a minute to thank you sincerely for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast and want to help us reach more people, the easiest thing to do is leave a rating and review on iTunes. And if you have a friend or colleague who maybe watches Storage Wars or Antiques Roadshow, clue them into Curious Objects. I'm so grateful to you for helping to spread the word. I'm also grateful for your feedback, and I've been receiving some really great helpful comments lately. As always, you can email me at podcast at themagazineantiques.com, and you can also find me on Instagram at Objective Interest. Give me your thoughts, your ideas for future guests. I really do want to hear it all. Our second sponsor for this episode is Renolda House Museum of American Art in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Renolda House is more than just an elegant 1917 historic estate. It's also home to a compelling and surprisingly wide-ranging collection of fine and decorative arts. Now, if you listen to this podcast, you probably already like house museums. But Renolda House goes beyond the typical displays of period furniture and old portraits. When you visit, you'll find thought-provoking objects like American artist Martin Johnson Heed's most famous orchid and hummingbird painting. Tobacco Baron R.J. Reynolds' mink coat, and century-old farm buildings, now serving crepes and rosé. That's going to be an important part of my visit. They also have a brand new app you can download called Renolda Revealed, which takes you on a virtual tour of the museum and grounds. I downloaded it on my phone, and I have to say it's actually a lot of fun to play around with and see all the photos and especially the backstories. I highly recommend checking it out at renolda.org, and of course, planning your visit to the house in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. That's R-E-Y-N-O-L-D-A dot org. The, the world of antiques, antiques dealers, tends to be dominated by old family businesses, you know, firms that have been passed down for generations and that have shops on fancy streets in Paris and London and New York. But you are a counterexample to that norm because you've built your business from scratch. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you're generally self-educated uh, when it comes to antique maps. And I'm really interested in, in learning a little bit about, uh, well, first of all, where your, your interest started and then how you, how you started to learn and how you started to figure out how to buy and, and sell maps and, and make a living that way. So can, can you take me on a little journey through the, the professional life of Kevin Brown? I suppose I graduated from college with degrees in, in philosophy and history with a focus in medieval pilgrimage. I had a bias against earning money. I'm sorry, you had a focus in medieval pilgrimage. I, I did. So it's not unrelated to maps. I focused on the pilgrimage to Santiago de Compostela. Really? Which I hiked twice as part of my academic research. I'm kidding. My sister finished that two days ago. Ah, well, congratulations. It, it, it's, it's an incredible experience. And part of that was seeing the world in a different way. Uh, thinking about your life and what your values are. And my own values, I quickly decided that would not allow me to to work for money. They would allow me to work for, or to, to earn money, of course, because everyone needs to earn money, but not for my time. 
I, I was willing to sell my knowledge, my experience, but I was not willing to sell my time. Uh, unfortunately, with degrees in philosophy and history, I did not have marketable knowledge or experience. I've been there. But nonetheless, we, we progress. And um, I, I moved to New York City and uh, was staying with a friend. And I'm, eBay at the time was just getting rolling. Uh, it was very early on in, in eBay's history. And a lot of things... This is what, late, late 90s? I would say early 90s. Early 90s, okay. E- eBay was just getting rolling. And a lot of things happened with eBay at that point. Uh, things that were not really rare attained a fairly high value because there was a perception of rarity. Uh, for example, as a child, uh, like many people in, in the 70s, I had a large collection of Smurfs, which I sold on I sold on eBay, and, and some of them were selling for shocking amounts of money, <laughs> hundreds of, some of them, you know, in the multiple hundreds of dollars each. Wow. And it was enough for a while for me to make my way in, in the world. So you were paying your rent? By selling collectibles on eBay. Selling Smurfs on eBay, mostly. My, my childhood toys. <laughs> then I occurred to me that I needed to resupply. And I would uh-huh. hit flea markets, drive up to Connecticut and uh, anywhere I could, and look for odds and ends that I could sell. And I did okay with that and paid some bills. But I was certainly wasn't getting rich. And when my housing, housing situation went downhill... Uh, As it does in New York. As it does. uh, I found myself in rather dire straits. I did not have a establishable income. I had an amount of experience in the world that did not qualify to me to become a burger and fry chef at McDonald's. (laughs) And uh, and I had rather high aspirations for my lifestyle. So that all of these were rather problematic. But I saw an alternative. It was better to burn out than fade away. So uh, I went to Venezuela, which at the time was the cheapest place to fly to in South America. And I, uh, I had this vision that I was going to live with indigenous tribes. Wow. And uh, just have a different kind of non-monetary lifestyle. Yeah. And so I worked my way into the southern reaches of Amazonas province in Venezuela. And uh, I did meet some tribes and I, I did briefly stay with them. But I pretty early on figured out that the tribal lifestyle was not for me. What was it that tipped you off to that? There were a lot of details that are probably not appropriate for a podcast. So <laughs> I, I'll pass on that one question if you don't mind. Okay, fair enough. But um, nonetheless, uh, a few weeks later, I packed up my bags and I was returning home to New York City. And at the time, I was staying with a friend. And I put all these items on eBay, which is something I knew how to do. Not all of them, most of them. And one fellow bought them who happened to live very close to where I was staying. I dropped them off at his place, and he was a prominent tribal art dealer. And uh, he called me a few weeks later. He said, well, Kevin, I, you know, I appreciate the things you sold me, but I really wasn't interested in them. I was interested in meeting someone like you who has an interest in this kind of work in tribal art. I'm, I'm old. Uh, I have a, a sickness that's making life very difficult for me. Uh, but I would like to stay in the business and I kind of need someone to be my, my legs and, and to pick up where I can't live off. And in turn, I'll introduce you to this incredible business that will be a great way of life. Wow. So he introduced me to buying and selling at auction, to the 
kind of the higher levels of, of the art and antiques market. Um, he was a great person. He, he helped me learn uh, pretty much everything that I knew when I started the antique map business. So uh, when he finally decided that he wanted to wind things down, I decided also that I was not going to be a tribal art dealer. Okay. And uh, at the meantime, I had built up a small collection of antique maps, which had always been something that I gravitated to. And I decided that this would be where I wanted to go and how I wanted to develop myself as, as a dealer. How, how old were you? At this time, I was in my late 20s. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, been, it's been good ever since then. Not, not that there haven't been hard times. Being an antique dealer is hard. It's very <laughs> easy to become cash-strapped because it's a cash-intensive business. You know, every day someone's calling you and, you know, you want another... You know, offering you something you can't refuse for fifty thousand dollars, yeah. and you're just like, yeah. "Oh boy!" Yeah, yeah. but uh, but you know, you build up your capital reserves, you build up your business, you build up your client base. So eventually, you can grow your business in this way, and uh, it's not an easy road, but it, it is a road that you can can follow, and, and that we did, and it turned out to be pretty well. We're at this point fairly well established. We're one of the larger dealers in terms of volume and antique maps probably anywhere in the world and uh, we often get a really exciting material that's inspiring to find and every day is a treasure hunt even if it's a treasure hunt within your own inventory <laughs> and uh, and then oftentimes you know you get to go out and travel the world and meet other dealers there aren't very many of us so we're a close-knit group of I would say friends mostly mm-hmm. uh, so it's, it's it's a wonderful business so that's a fascinating entree into the field, and you're in an enviable position now. But there's a middle part that you wave your hands over a little, which is how you went from having a small collection of, you know, a personal collection of antique maps to having a really impressive inventory with objects like this uh, Qing map of China. And that's a process that I think for a lot of people who are considering a career in the antiques world is uh, really intimidating because you have to not only find, you not only have to educate yourself about the material and become an expert um, and prepare yourself to make mistakes, uh, but you also have to build up a clientele and find people who are willing to trust you and take a risk with you when you're not yet very well established. I mean, the, the middle ground, I did gloss over it. And it's mostly because it, it's not pretty. It's hard. Uh, one should rightly be intimidated. I have. I remember times when my bank account was at zero. I would go for a month without making a single sale. I was broke. And yet, persistence with anything, you, you stick to it. Grit. You make it happen. You, you, you know, sell something for less than you want so that you can buy something else, so that you can make money on it, or just pay your rent. You, you find, you try to find things in innovative ways. Uh, somebody once told me something which I, I liked a great deal and I think is quite smart. There are two things actually I can say that I think are quite smart that helped us grow our businesses. One was, as an accountant I was working with, told me this and he was comparing me with the, the gentleman who uh, introduced me to tribal art. And what he said was, it's like, well, he needs to make about 70 cents on every dollar. You need to make about $5 on every dollar. <laughs> but uh, certainly, you know, the, as you grow, 
that that's a transition that helps. The other thing I would say, which is, this is something I've only heard recently. Um, one of my clients, in fact, uh, was giving a lecture on his collection and, and he used Rumsfeldian terms to describe how he collects. But also I realized when I heard that, this is also how we buy. So they're the known knowns, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> right? So this is a, an item that has an established history that you know how much you're going to pay for it, you know how much you can sell it for, and the market is fairly known. So a good example of this in the antique map world might be an Artelius map of the world. Right. Now, this is a, a major map maker. There are many examples of it out there. They have a strong auction history and People either want it or they don't, but you pretty much know you can sell it and you know roughly at what price you can sell it. That's a known known. And then there's the uh, known unknowns. Unknowns, So there are things that you know are out there, but you haven't seen or found. This is is a little more desirable. So early on as a dealer, I would not really focus on known knowns because everyone knows what it is and you're not going to make that much money. Now, known unknowns, that's great because you, if you have a lot of knowledge, then you can say, aha. I have, I have, I know what this is, and maybe this other person who's selling it is a little antique shop in Wichita doesn't know what it is. Mm-hmm. You can buy it, mm-hmm. you can mark it up, and you can make some money. You can introduce it to the market. You know, and, and, and that's an area where, um, not to sidetrack us, but it seems like the internet is is really kind of um, compressing what what fits into that category because now that little dealer in Wichita. Um, might actually Google what he's got and find find out what it is. Not might will, they will Google it and but they won't. This is a, this is why it's a known unknown, right? So they will they will probably Google it. They will probably not find anything. So the the typical process if someone doesn't know anything about a specialty item, and they find it at a maybe they're a picker, they buy it at a house sale, they'll Google it, and if they find it, they're like aha. They'll take the most expensive price they see online uh, and they'll say, okay, that's it's, what it's, it's worth. That's what, it's that's worth. what I'm right. going to get for right. it. And then they'll start calling up everybody they can think of saying, hey, I got this. I'd be willing to sell it for 10% less than this most expensive price I've ever seen. Uh-huh. And, and then they quickly realize they're not going to sell it. Yeah. And the other thing that happens is they Google it and they find absolutely nothing. And they're like, oh, it's a piece of junk. No one knows anything about it. And they put a price of uh-huh. whatever whatever their gut instinct is. And it could be outrageously high. Sure. Or it could be outrageously low. And yeah. then and then going back to the Rumsfeldian argument, there's the unknown unknowns. And these are just things that you stumble across that nobody knows about. No one knows what they are. And you have to figure out what they are. And through experience and instinct and knowledge and historical information and comparable data that you might have in the back of your mind, maybe you can figure out what it is or, or at least place it as something that may have value. And then then you can buy something and you can probably make good money. Can you give me an example of a, a sexy unknown unknown? So a recent unknown unknown that we discovered is a map I have in front of me right now. And I'll just describe it for your audience it's a Japanese map. A lot of the text is in Japanese, but its actual coverage extends all the way from Japan to England. The map is dominated by a giant tree 
which uh, fills the entire center of the map. It, it, it's weeping. It has a big nose. It's kind of looking towards Japan, and its root system extends all throughout Europe and uh, Central Asia and Southeast Asia. Now, this, this giant tree is, is representative of Russia. This map was issued in 1904, which was the right at the end of the Russo-Japanese War, in which uh, Russia kind of got their asses kicked. You can't say that, can I? You can say that. All right, so Russia kind of got their asses kicked by Japan. And the map, uh, it, it is in, um, it's mostly in Japanese, but it's also in English. There's an English title, uh, which I will translate. I will, I will read literally. Humor, reproach, condition, map of Europa and Asia. <laughs> so <laughs> the English is not that good. It can't really make sense of that. And there's also an English text block, which I will not attempt to read because it is, um, for all intent and purposes, gibberish. gibberish. Uh, but it, I mean, there, there are real words there, but they, they don't. They don't make sense. Okay. There is a Japanese text block as well, which is much easier to read, and it describes how all of the world is celebrating for Japan's great defeat of, of Russia, who is intimidating all of Europe. Wow. Which, at the time, uh, one could arguably say it was. So you could say this is a uh, political map. It, it's a very political map. Uh, the fact that it's in both English and Japanese suggests something very interesting. And the fact that Japan is on one end and England is at the other. They're wearing the same color coats. England is holding a Japanese flag. And the message here is we we are partners. We you know, Let's join together to fight this, this common enemy who's, wow. who's horrible and, and is dominating the world. This kind of map emerged uh, first in Europe, but the Japanese were very quick to embrace it. And they issued several maps regarding the Russo-Japanese War, four that I'm aware of. And this map is previously unknown. Uh, there's the only known example anywhere. There are no references to it. It is, uh, it is a, a perfect unknown unknown. Did you know what it was as soon as you saw it? I knew what it had to be in the sense that um, I knew it was a Japanese map. I knew it was in the model that is known as a serial comic map where cartoonish figures represent different countries. I know from the date uh, what it was covering and from the iconography on the map, for example, Japan wields an axe and is chopping off Russia's legs. I, I recognize that as relating to, say, the siege of Port Arthur and other events associated with the Russo-Japanese War. I also know because I haven't seen it that it, it must be exceedingly rare so or, or unheard of, which in fact it is. So all of these things together enabled me to, to make a decision on this map uh, about my own desire to represent it and, uh, my, and, and place it within the context of other similar maps, even though I had never actually seen the map itself before. Fabulous. Uh, is there anything else you'd like our listeners to know about you and about your uh, your world of maps only that uh, you know we are geographicus rare antique maps www.geographicus.com we exhibit shows all over the world and uh, if you're interested in buying an antique map or just learning more about antique maps i hope you'll check out our site or sign up for our mailing list all right well thanks so much kevin thank you (laughs) 
That's a wrap on today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it and maybe learned a thing or two. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes and send your feedback to me at podcast at themagazineantiques.com or on Instagram at Objective Interest. And one more reminder to post your own curious object on Instagram with the MyCuriousObject hashtag tagging AntiquesMag. Today's episode was produced and edited by Sammy Delotti. Our music is by Trap Rabbit. I'm Ben Miller, and I'll see you next time. Thank you.